Broadcasting live. It's America's longest-running talk show on computers. It's Computer America, bringing you the biggest names in technology with guest interviews, new products, and your emails. Listen live at ComputerAmerica.com on any device around the world. Email the show at live at ComputerAmerica.com or find us on social media. Be sure to check out our website for contests, giveaways, show notes, live video stream, podcasts, and more. You're listening to Computer America. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest running nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful day. And hey, welcome into the Computer America Show. We uh, yeah, we have a lot to talk about where in the second part of the program, we will be doing computer and technology news. And there we have a lot of stories that we should definitely touch on, including, well, you know, the fact that Facebook had their worst day on record. Uh, the fact that Samsung is looking at using more energy efficient chips in their next set of smartphones. And hey, uh, so much more. Uh, let's see, I think we can squeeze one more uh, teaser in there. Oh, uh, the next benchmarks for, the, or I'm sorry, the benchmarks for the next Intel chip, uh, the, I, you know, the next generation i7s, they're dropping hyperthreading. So we're going to talk about well, what hyperthreading is, why that matters, and why it's such a surprising move. So all that and more, second part of the show. But in the first part, you're in for a treat because we have an interview with a great company called Pengo. And if you Google Pengo like I had to do before the show, uh, you're going to see a lot of penguins. But we promise it's not about penguins. It's about you know phone accessories and, uh, and a bunch of different gadgets that we think could really make your life easier. So we're going to talk with the company, see what they do, and, uh, and what products they have. So a couple of things before we get started, including ComputerAmerica.com. That will have everything from the show notes, which will have a link to our guest website. Any videos, articles that we show on the show uh, will be right there in one place. So if you're busy, if you're driving, don't worry, we got you covered. Also, be sure to check out the social media contest brought to you by Logitech, and be sure to check out the live video stream brought to you by OWC. So, all that more at Computer America. Uh, be on the lookout for new reviews and articles that we're going to be pushing out here shortly. And in the meantime, let's go ahead and jump right into our program today. So, uh, yeah, so let's just go ahead and uh, jump into this. So joining us on the show, as I mentioned before, is a company called Pango Technologies Co. Ltd. If you want to be specific, and yeah, they're joining us, uh, you know, by Skype. So let's go ahead and uh, and just bring them on. So joining us today is Miss Diana Lan, and she is the sales and marketing director for the company. So Diana, welcome on to Computer America. How are you? Our pleasure, our pleasure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're watching the video portion, we're showing your website at the moment. You guys make a lot of different technology, and so there's a lot of different ways we can start this, but I think the best way to start would be a bit of background. Uh, what is what is Penko Technology? When did you guys get your start? And tell us a bit about yourself. How did you find yourself working for Penko? A really young company. We started this year, and it is a group of really young, enthusiastic engineers that thrive to develop 
innovative, functional, and slick computer and mobile phone accessory, accessories, especially uh, focus in connectivity. If you see the website, so we have a bunch of uh, cables, lining cables for iPhone, Type-C adapters, and other accessories. Right. Yeah. And, and you have, and like, you know, just judging by uh, some of the photos, you really seem to be focusing on, like, obviously there's a lot of aesthetic to it, but uh, a lot of lightning cables as well. So uh, is this primarily Android or Apple? Uh, I mean, which, uh, which devices do you try to support? Uh, we don't especially focus on one specific device, but we also try, uh, so you'll find Lightning cables for iPhones, but you also find uh, USB Type C connectors and cables that are available for you know Samsung, Android um, devices. Perfect. Yeah, and uh, and of course you can see them all right there. But uh, obviously we uh, you know kind of you caught our attention. With, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, did we get any background on yourself? I mean, do you come from the you know marketing side or what's your background? Oh, so uh, I'm the sales and marketing director of Pengo. So basically, I'll be responsible of presenting Pengo to everyone and hope hope that it becomes a brand that everybody can recognize and rely for its quality. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah. hey, um, obviously, uh, you know, Pengo, all this stuff, it's... Um, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people use every day, a lot of cables, and, uh, you know, this, this stuff is going to be what, uh, you know, kind of what they expect. But what brought us to your attention was uh, the idea of a grabber. And this is something that, you know, we kind of use. It's a, it's a bit of a niche product, but it's becoming more and more popular with the idea of, you know, live streaming or making YouTube videos or uh, any number of different applications. Why don't we go ahead and jump right in and then we can, you know, kind of backtrack to some of your other products. But let's talk about the 4K HDMI grabber. What is it and just what is it, what is it meant to do? Okay, so uh, most people might be confused a little bit with the name. Uh, some people call it uh, video capture. Some people call it uh, game capture. We decided to call it uh, grabber. I would... I will. I believe that our RD team said that grabber is more of a technical uh, way of saying it. So we decided to call our device uh, 4K HDMI grabber, kind of to a little bit differentiate from the competitors and make it a little bit more unique. So actually, this device, it's like you said, is for live streamers or people that like to play consoles to record themselves and put that video online to teach, regardless if it is to teach people how to play or how to share their skills and things like that. It's really easy uh, device to use. Basically, it's a plug and play where you connect your console into it, your monitor, and then you plug in your PC or, of course, your Mac. Mm -hmm. to use the uh, to do the recording but obviously you need uh, an external software to do the recording it's not an automatic re uh, recording right 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 and i i guess um 
So the difference between this and a video capture card is the fact that it's external and uh, again, just kind of named to differentiate one another. Uh, I, I guess, why would someone use this as opposed to something, let's say, like a software solution that could run on the computer? Is it, uh, you know, does it make it faster? Is it uh, easier on the system? Is this, you know, just kind of one of the only ways you could do a console? Um, when would someone want to use this as opposed to, you know, some other solutions? Uh, like you said, it's, it doesn't require, well, it needs a software, but also it doesn't take up the, the CPU, uh, speed from the computer. And also if you usually would be for laptops for, because most of the people right now use laptops over des desktops. So, uh, in your laptop, you don't have too, you don't have a, such a high powerful computer, so you will need this de external device that doesn't require external power. And also, we don't have an active fan. So basically, we try to use our technology to, uh, for this device, th that it doesn't require an external, what do you call it, external fan. To right. cool it down, yes. No, very, very cool. So obviously, uh, you know, just looking at the device itself, very, very simple. You didn't, uh, you know, you didn't make this too complicated. Uh, describe the device, uh, you know, because we're primarily a radio show. Uh, you know, what are the dimensions of it, and what ports would you find on the front and the back of this device? Oh wow, I actually don't know the dimensions by heart, but I can tell you that. Pretty sure it's about forty or forty to thirty percent smaller than an Apple TV. I would say probably the smaller than the palm of your hand, mm -hmm. and about maybe half an inch thick. So it's very small, very compact. So you can take it with you to do live stream anywhere you want with your laptop. Yes, very, but very of cool. course. You, you require uh, a device to uh, to film yourself, of course. Right. And does it get power through USB? Does it have its own power cable? It, it will use the power from your computer. I got you. But so, it's yeah. USB 3, so it doesn't require too much power. Very, very cool. And I, I mean, I'm looking at, uh, you know, some of the different devices you can hook up to this, obviously a camera, it looks like you, you could even hook up a smartphone. And I, you know, there's a couple applications I can think of, where you'd want to capture the screen of your phone, uh, and be able to broadcast that out as well. Yes. And, I, you know, this all seems like a very, you know, kind of compact solution. Um, is there any software that goes on with this or is this just, you know, kind of get your cables right and, uh, you know, use maybe something like OBS or, uh, XSplit or some other, uh, software solution? Yes, we tested it with XSplit. We also tested it with OBS. We also made it available, to, uh, to function with a uh, QuickTime and VLC, which is more, for uh, what it, for the consumer, it's an easier software because OBS and XSplit is more more for advanced users, I believe. So, and most people will have VLC and QuickTime if they use uh, a Mac. Right. 
So, no, and uh, very, very cool. So it works with uh, Windows, Mac, all that kind of thing. Again, it's kind of a hardware solution. Um, so, I mean, all of this, very, very simple. Uh, how much How much does something like this cost? Well, we set the retail price at $249 it, in Amazon, but I think it's on sale right now for almost half the price. Very, very nice. And just how has the reaction been to, you know, putting out a product like this? Because I think, you know, making YouTube videos, live streaming your events, it's certainly becoming much more of, uh, you know, something people are interested in doing. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I guess it's kind of hard to convey what exactly this device can do for you to people who've never had to use something like this. I mean, how's the reception to your 4K uh, HDMI grabber been? Well, we just started, so I would say to start with, we consider it uh, pretty good. Uh, we are trying to do a few reviews with some other bloggers and YouTubers to teach the the audience also how to use it. Um, no, I would say pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty good. <laughs> we few we sold a few a uh, few units over the last month. Okay. Yeah, we just started to sell it like in a month only. Yeah, and and again, you know, it's going to be about getting the word out. And hey, we're happy that you're able to join us here on Computer America to do just that. So, uh, no, very very cool product. And let's see, uh, I, I mean, there have been a couple others on the market, uh, you know, kind of in this field, but really the ones I've seen are kind of embedded in people's computers. They're definitely not portable. Um, is there anything else about this? I mean, obviously you spent quite a bit of time working on the aesthetics of this thing. Uh, is there anything about, uh, you know, your grabber that differentiates from others? Yes. Uh, actually our RD team spent over a year to develop this product. They try to make it as perfect as possible. So we hope like the the audience like what we did with the product. We try uh, actually the key to this kind of devices is the no latency, which means that no lag. So we try to reduce that to almost none to a minimum. Uh, the way that our RD team works is we always try to buy the competitor's product, we test it and make sure that ours is better. So I would say that's something unique from our company. Um, we are also, after engineer this product, we also have a sales team that try to, we call it OEM to other brands as well. So hopefully, you know, we, even though it's not Pango, but maybe you'll find or device in other brands. Yeah, no, and that's a very good uh, you know point to make is that you also resell to uh, to other distributors as well. And I uh, oh, oh yeah, and, and uh, one thing I wanted to ask was uh, why was why did you decide to uh, push out this product with 4K because. You know, uh, we obviously watch a lot of live streams and things like that. Uh, 4K live streaming is something that is pretty, uh, pretty unheard of. But I guess 4K gaming is is on the up and rise. I mean, why was it so important to make a 4K grabber as opposed to 
uh, you know, something that was a bit less, like uh, maybe just an, an HD grabber with uh, low latency? Oh, uh, well, because we feel HD, it's already old technology. So the new hit will be 4K. And like you said, we were trying to target the gaming industry where games already, the gaming, they're already hitting the 4K target. And then if you're a gamer, you always want quality and then high resolution. And obviously, like you said, lo no latency. No, very, very true. So very, very cool. And you sell this obviously through different distributors, but uh, I believe you also sell this through Amazon, correct? Yes, at the moment, yes. All right, perfect. So, all right, so there's that one. And, I, you know, 4K HDMI grabber, I'm glad that you named it something like a grabber because it explains, you know, kind of what it does very, very effectively. Uh, just real quick, and, you know, obviously there's not much you can say about, uh, you know, about a particular cable in general, but just looking at your other products, give us a quick overview of, you know, I guess some of your first products, which include USB-C, uh, you know, obviously audio uh, adapter cables. Uh, what, um, you know, what are the difference between your cables and other people's cables? And, you know, just why did you start with cables and then end up at a grabber? Well, actually, it's the other way around. We started with the grabber, oh. and then we, we we said, oh, we cannot have just one product. So we we the simplest was to do connectivity because the grabber is kind of connects a lot of cables and devices together. So we're like, okay, fine, we'll do accessories <laughs> as well. So we got into cables. And the difference between our cables is um, durability, and the connectivity uh, it may look simple but actually connecting certain people is connect connecting certain cables to the connector actually there's certain technical part of it so um how durable and how long it lasts the cable will depend on the factory and how you connect the the wires together. So I would say we're hoping that people will see that instead of a cable that costs like $5 or $2 that you, you find, you know, on Amazon or on the market on, on a swap me. Right. Right. And, uh, it, it, not too long ago, we, we recently had, uh, one of the chairman for the HDMI foundation and, you know, going into cables, there's a lot of manufacturers out there that just push a cable out and, like you said, meet that $2 price point. And people go, oh, look, a $2 cable. But there are a lot of standards. And for cable to work properly and, you know, kind of what you expect, you really want to, you know, get one from a reputable distributor. So I'm glad that you're making your own and you don't just rely on people to go out and buy, you know, the cheapest one out there. So very, very cool. Uh Pango Technologies, and uh, again, you know, we were primarily going to, uh, you know, kind of talk about your grabber, but I think we've also, you know, kind of ran through the rest of this. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, Pango? Uh, what's next for you guys? Is it is it all research and development? Is it still about uh, capturing displays? What's uh, what's down the road for Pango? So we'll have obviously more cables, more adapters. Uh, we'll also have. Uh a very unique dock station uh, 
docking station that hopefully will be released by the end of this year. Um, and obviously by next year, we hope to have a grabber that actually captures 4K. So um, I hope that everybody is excited excited as we are <laughs> no and i'm sure we are because like we said it's uh you know live streaming and uh and making youtube videos and things like that it's only going to get more popular and i'm glad that companies such as yourself are you know really fostering this idea that anyone could do it with the right hardware so uh hey you know we're we're really looking forward to this and you know we may get in touch with you to obviously see because you know we do essentially the same thing with our live video feed and we'd love to review one of these products for you. But we'll talk about that later. And in the meantime, though, everyone, Miss Diana Lan and uh, Sales and Marketing Director for Pengo Technologies. We have a link to the website in our show notes. But, um, uh, Dana, I'll let you have the last word. If people want to find out more, uh, where should they go? Uh, you can always go to our website, which is www.pengohome.com or you can find more information through Amazon but the most reliable is through our website we also have a Facebook fan page as well as Twitter but I'm doing everything myself so everything <laughs> is <laughs> very busy everything is the best yeah yeah, but no. yes, hopefully everybody can support us. Uh, feel free to test our product with other brands, and we always welcome you know positive uh, feedback and let us know what we can improve or make it better and see how we can make you know the product better for uh, everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. So as I said, link to it in the show notes. And uh, and Diana, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking your t taking time out of your day to do this. And I know it was your first time, but really, you nailed it again. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Ha thank have, you. have a good one. Bye bye. You too. Okay, bye. All right, everyone. And there we go. And there she goes. So yeah, and that is Pango Technologies. So let's see, let's see, let's see. Let's do one thing real quick. And that's not what I was going to do. That's what I was going to do. There we go. So everyone, Pango Technologies, uh, obviously, you know, a bit of a short interview, but hey, you know, 4K Grabber. I think we pretty much described what it does. And uh, obviously we stream live on Twitch and a lot of people who, you know, kind of live stream, they use devices such as these, you know, what separates, I think, someone who's just getting started and someone with a bit more of a vested interest is when you use a device like this and you get, you know, more than just, uh, you know, more than just a one PC setup, or you want to capture your console, it's, um, you know, this can really up the production value of what it is that you do. So, yep, go ahead and check it out again. ComputerAmerica.com show notes for today. So, in the meantime, we will of course switch on over to computer and technology news, which works out well because, let's see if I get this right. Um. Yeah, yeah, about 18 different stories, and I guarantee you we're not going to do all of them, but we're going to uh, you know, talk about these in order of importance as I see them. So if you want to join us, of course, twitch.tv forward slash computer America, join us in the chat room, and you can put your in, and you can put your input to which I can easily ignore. It's going to be great. Everyone, computer and technology news brought to you by OWC. Here we go. All 
right, all right. And uh, congratulations to the 16 gigs. So let's talk about, I think, the big grill in the room. So full disclosure, uh, you know, we're not sponsored by Intel or anything right now. And, you know, this story, it's, I I, want to say it's a little, uh, I can't even use the word disturbing. It's just strange. So for the longest time, a lot of, a lot of Intel chips use this process called hyperthreading, and it was a way to turn a single. So it was a way to turn a single core into multiple threads at which a compu- a computer program could take advantage of. So it was a memory trick, and it led to, let's say, a program that was optimized. Many, many, many of them are optimized for two, three, four threads. Very, very few only uh, think of maybe video encoders or, uh, you know, research machines actually took advantage of anything more than, let's say, eight threads. So the more threads it was able to simultaneously uh, take advantage of, the smoother it would run and essentially give your... Uh, applications, you know, kind of more room to spread out and uh, run more efficiently. So that was the idea. Threads were king. And you could look at a number of products from the AMD line, that is Intel's main competitor. And with, uh, you know, let's see, I think they had like Bulldozer and a couple other, uh, you know, their new Ryzen chips. They went all in on hyperthreading. They thought that the future of computing, and although it took them a few years, the future of computing is going to be the idea that a program is not just going to max out two or three or four cores, but rather take advantage of 10 different threads or 15 different threads. It's, um, yeah, and uh, Bulldozer, and, uh, I'm sorry, Bulldozer and Excavator. There we go. Thank you, chat. And yeah, it, it, so it didn't come true right away. But with Ryzen coming out, they, uh, you know, they have, they squeezed a lot more threads and hyper-threading into their chips. So Intel kind of stuck to their guns, only did, you know, like one to two hyper-threading for every core, you get two hyper-threads, and that was enough for Intel. So recently, the shift for enthusiasts or pro gaming computers or even professionals is that you have, Intel recently put out the i9 processors, which have like uh, 10 cores, 20 hyper threading or or hyper threads, or in some cases, I think at the latest Computex, they showed off 16 core, 32 threads, and AMD came out with a 20 core, 40 thread. Like you can see that the race to build the better hyper-threaded processor is on. Which is why it's so confusing that this new leaked benchmark, and I hope that the leaked benchmark is simply wrong, even though usually when uh, organizations such as Ars Technica report on these, they, they're usually pretty reputable, and they show that the next generation of i7 chips, which used to be the flag uh, the flagship for the consumer models but currently sits just below the i9 looks like it's going to be running the 8 core and 8 threads so no more hyper threading it's just going to be 8 cores 8 threads as opposed to what's traditionally been 8 cores and 16 threads so that means if you want 
if you want hyper-threading, and uh, every time I say hyper-threading in this article, you can think of it as multitasking. If you want multitasking, you're going to have to go to the i9. I don't know why. It really just appears to me that the that Intel is pushing their more expensive i9 chips for people who run multiple applications. We mentioned live streamers. The idea that you run a video game, a web browser, a video encoder, uh, you know, maybe some music in the background, maybe a second uh, video game or something like that. If you want room to actually take advantage of all those applications, it seems Intel is forcing you into the i9 lineup of processors. So, yeah, and and uh, yeah, and definitely, as one of the chatters said, it's an obvious deviation that i7 has had hyperthreading for a long time. And now we're heading to a place where only the i9 has hyper-threading. And yeah, call, calling their product lineup a mess, I don't... Well, well, yes, their product line is a mess, but it's because they haven't switched over to the 7 nanometer architecture that the processors were promised to. So we're about to run into the break here, just full disclosure. But when we come back, we're going to talk about what it is that the benchmark is showing. Uh, is this actually a downgrade? And why would Intel possibly do this? Because this is not a positive. There's not a lot of ways to spin this. This is not a positive move from Intel with their i7 line. So everyone, we'll be right back. More Computer America right after this. If you missed any part of today's show, by the way, and you want to check out our interview with Pango, please feel free to go out to Computer America and check out the podcast. It's today's show in its entirety. Folks, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airline travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. That's 800-215-4461. We are all Brother Wolf. Ten years ago, a group of locals banded together to create positive change. We took animals into our homes, held adoption events at local retailers, and talked to the community about our mission to help build a no-kill Asheville. A decade later, we have achieved so many victories for animals in need. There's been so much progress, yet there's still so much to do. As part of our year-long celebration, we encourage you to become a member of our special Compassionate Circle program. With a monthly donation of $10 or more, you will have behind-the-scenes access to the work we are doing at Brother Wolf. Our goal is to reach 1,000 members because we receive no government funding. 
Working together, we can help build and sustain no-kill communities. Learn more at compassionatecircle.bwar.org. We are a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. We are doing computer and technology news brought to you by OWC. And yeah, if you miss any part of today's program, check out the podcast. We'll leave it there. So uh, yeah, we uh, for anyone just joining us, welcome into the Computer America Show. We are about to get into this this uh, this article outlining a leaked benchmark, which you know, yes, you're pretty much reporting on rumors, but at the same time, pretty reputable, and they show. That the i7, really in my mind, the venerable i7 line of processors is losing their ability to hyperthread, and instead it's just going to be 8 cores, 8 threads, as opposed to the traditional 8 cores, 16 threads of chips. And yeah, you know, I'll be honest, this makes the i7 lineup a bit less desirable when it comes to... Uh, you know, performance and, and, and there's some nuance here. We're going to talk about that. So why don't we just go ahead and get started? So obviously, um, they said that the Intel's naming scheme for the processors has often been described as obtuse, where there have been some patterns that the company seemed to follow. Whereas for desktop processors, the i7 branding denotes chips with hyper threading enabled running two threads on each core. I5 branded parts had the same number of cores, but the hyper-threading was disabled, and I3 parts, in turn, had fewer cores than the I5 parts, but once again, hyper-threading was enabled. So, in this case, think of like an I7 with 8 cores, 16 threads, the I5 would have 8 cores, 8 threads, and then the I3s would maybe have 4 cores, 8 threads. It would be, you know, a, a bit less powerful, but it would have hyper-threading enabled once again. So, the 8th generation chips changed this pattern a little with the i3s that don't have hyper-threading, just fewer cores, but the relationship between the i5s and i7s remained. So, last generation, the i3s went from, let's say, 4 cores, 8 threads, to 4 cores, 4 threads. And again, for anyone just joining us, the idea of a thread in a processor means that a program is able to use that to work. So uh, less threads, less multitasking. There you go. So now we have, uh, and, and someone mentioned uh, six, six core i5s. Yes, those, those are also a thing. So obviously, uh, whenever you check out a processor, you're going to have to look at... Um, you know, at the cores and threads, the, the, the i5, i7, i3 designation really is starting to lose its meaning and you have to become a bit more savvy to show, uh, you know, what the core and thread count actually is. So, uh, with that being said, it looks like the next batch of Intel processors probably branded the ninth generation is going to shake the situation up further where they list a core i7 9700K processor and this increases the core count from the six cores in the eighth generation Coffee Lake to eight cores. But even even though here we go, even though it's an i7 chip, it doesn't appear to have hyperthreading enabled. Its base clock speed is 3.6 gigahertz, which is pretty good. That's not bad. 
with a turbo, so that's overclocking, but overclocking uh, that's sanctioned by Intel at 4.9 gigahertz, which 4.9, that is incredibly fast. That's almost five, five just a few years ago was something that many tried to achieve, but you needed like liquid nitrogen cooling systems to maintain that for any notable amount of time. So the fact that it can run a stable 4.9, just under a five, is still pretty good with 12 megabytes cache. And the price is expected to be around 350, which is the same as the current top-end i7s. Here's the problem though. For the chip that will sit just above the i7-9700K, Intel is extending the use of its i9 branding, which will then land it the i9-9900 K. There you go. And that will be an eight core, 16 thread processor. Folks, they simply took the i7, made all the other i7s worse, and made what you would expect from an i7 into an i9. And they bumped the memory up a bit to 16 megabytes cache, and they and they were able to get the turbo up to 5 gigahertz, the magical number, and they priced it at about 450. They took what used to be the flagship for the i7 lineup, gave it to the i9 lineup, and increased the price by 100. It's not a very... It's not a good way to go about branding your products. First of all, you're confusing people because you're taking what was traditionally you know, something that had a little bit of meaning in your product uh, branding and you're stripping that away and then you are taking what would traditionally be in that first lineup and giving it to a second one just because I think part of it was a marketing move that people think of the i7 as not a flagship product because there's an i9, 7 or 9 is greater than 7. So it seems like to to further designate what is the best of the best of each lineup, they're just throwing everything under the i9 umbrella. So the i9 is a reaction to the Ryzen 7. So yeah, the uh, the original point of the i9, just to everyone, for everyone to be clear, the i7 for the longest time was the best of the best you could get with Intel. And then came along the Ryzen line of processors, as I said, hyper-threading was king. They had 10 cores, 20 threads, 12 core, 24 threads. Uh, I believe they even had a 14 core, 28 thread Ryzen at the very tippy top. Cost like a thousand bucks, but hey, they had it available. Um, yeah, in response, like there was nothing Intel had in its consumer, consumer lineup that even came close to that level of performance. And so in response to that, Intel essentially took tweaked and rebranded some of their, um, oh, what do they call it? They have like an enterprise line of uh, database uh, processors. And I'm going to kick myself for not remembering exactly, exactly what it was called, but it's not Celeron. But anyways, they took their kind of enterprise level processors and rebranded them as i9s and bing, bang, boom you have a new uh, top end. It just, it, it just seems, let's, and, and of course, it, it just seems like Intel is having trouble really 
conveying that they have a new best processor without actually changing all that much. Because if you look at the specs, if you look at the benchmarks, they are squeezing every little bit of juice out of their current 10 nanometer processor die. They are on the eighth generation where many of these chips had at most three or four generations. They are running into that brick wall of research and development hard. So they're trying to get people excited. They're trying to, you know, make it look like something that it's not. And for those of us who, you know, kind of enjoy when Intel and AMD come out with, you know, actual innovation, seeing them take things away and differentiate their products artificially, it just doesn't hit you in a good spot. So even without hyper-threading, the new i7s should be faster than old i7s. A part, uh, a part with eight cores is going to be faster than the four-core, eight-thread chip of a couple of generations ago, and should in general be faster than the six-core, 12-thread, eighth-generation chip. Uh, peak clock speeds are pushed slightly higher than they would in the eighth-generation chip. So... Uh, Xeon, yes, the Xeon processor. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, thank you so much for it. Uh, the Xeon processors were rebranded to become the new i7. So low-end Xeon processors became the high-end i9 processors. Anywho, the people who will see a difference. If you buy a high-end i7, if you if you get an eight-core, eight-thread i7 processor as opposed to previous generations where you had an eight-core, sixteen-thread, if you're someone who who plays video games streams uh, streams that video somewhere, has a browser open, and uh, you know maybe has one or two different programs running in the background as well, you're going to see a performance decrease. If you're someone who encodes video, makes videos, uh, you know has to uh, you know has to export them or has to use a lot of processor power, you're going to see a performance decrease as well. If you're someone who simply runs a computer game and has a web browser open and you don't really do a lot of multitasking, you'll probably see a slight performance boost because you're not maxing out your threads. You are staying within the lanes that Intel is giving you. But um, overall, what they're doing is they're taking away a feature from one of their processors. They're boosting clock speed by about one or 200 megahertz. So instead of a 3.7, or I'm sorry, instead of a 4.7 or a 4.9, you're now getting a 4.9 and a 5 gigahertz. The increases generation after generation are marginal, and now we're even starting to lose features. It's kind of a problem. So... Yeah, and let's see, except more cores equals slower clock speeds. Yeah, uh, that's something if you look at, let's say, the i9s. Like, in a lot of i9s, if you had, let's say, a 10-core a processor or a 12-core processor, instead of running at 3.7 gigahertz base clock speed, you would then run at, let's say, 2.7 gigahertz or 3 gigahertz as opposed to, you know, and, and you lose that little bit of performance, and a lot of that has to do with how the space on the processor actual chip is allocated. And also there's a you know performance cost to heat buildup. And you have all those different threads and processes. You're going to have a lot more heat that that gives off. And to run stably, you have to reduce the clock speed as well. 
So, you know, we're going to leave it there. The point is, I think Intel has squeezed everything that they possibly can out of the 10 nanometer manufacturing process. And now what we're seeing is them moving, like, let's say they have a table full of stuff. They're just moving items on the table instead of actually increasing their table size. And that's going to start biting them. And and I think it's going to start biting them if these benchmarks that were leaked from SciSoft's Sandra database, if these are to be believed, and, you know, we're going to have official numbers here in probably in the coming months, that's going to start biting them in the butt real soon. So there we go. Um, And, and, you know, uh, of course, uh, Fort in the chat room giving us some advice. Second case, get the faster CPU you can afford. And of course, more threads is better. More threads, you know, and at the same time, I don't strictly think that more threads are better because honestly, if you have one monitor and you don't multitask, you probably won't use that 16 threads very often. But I think the biggest issue here, and we're going to stop beating a dead horse here in in just a minute. The biggest problem here is that they're changing the definitions of their product line. i7 used to strictly be 8-core, 16-thread. That's moving to the i9. The i7 is getting 8-core, 8-thread, something that was reserved for the i5. So the i7 got worse. The i9 got a little bit got a little bit worse because, you know, hey, they used to be better than the i7s, and it's just more convoluted. So there you go. We're going to go ahead and uh, you know switch over from this one, but we're going to keep a close eye on what Intel is doing and what they're doing with their processors. So, all right, there's that story. Good thing we only spent 15 minutes on that. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about some of these others. Uh, so we have some uh, pretty important ones. I actually like this one. So if you take your first class of computer science and you learn kind of some of the history, uh, some of the history on computer science, you think would start, oh, you know, in the labs of IBM or Bell or, you know, some of these, uh, or the military, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when the first computer networks or the first computer mainframes or databases were, uh, you know, kind of making their existence known. But history starts with computers actually back, I believe, in the late 1800s. And one of the first computer programmers is none other than Miss Ada Lovelace. And they, and of course, as the article from Engadget, uh, Mallory Locklear kind of mentions, uh, many consider to be the first computer programmer. And one of her manuscripts, which... You know, we call them manuscripts. They were never actually run on a physical computer, but it's essentially the first piece of code just sold at auction for $125,000. Kind of funny, you know, to think that, uh, you know, a lot of companies sell their, uh, you know, sell codes for much, much more, but for the first piece of code to sell for that much, that's pretty cool. So a first edition and just one of six known copies of the book, it contains Lovelace's translations of a paper written by Italian mathematician Luigi Menabrea. 
right? That considers Charles Babbage's plans for his analytic analytical engine computing machine. So the manuscript is also uh, also contains copious explanatory notes and observations from Lovelace, as well as a formula for calculating uh, Bernoulli numbers that has been called the world's first computer program. So, yeah, there you go, Lovelace, and you know goes into some of her history, and uh, you know we're gonna skip through that because not everyone here is a uh, you know kind of computer science uh, buff. But the manuscript, which was purchased by an unnamed buyer, also features handwritten notes believed to be inscribed by Dr. William King, a friend of Lovelace who is thought to be the book's original owner. And the title page says the translation includes notes by the translator, underneath which is handwritten inscription, Lady Lovelace. So, there you have it. If uh, Just a little piece of computer history, and I'm glad that it's being honored in such a way that's, you know, hey, people are finding it valuable, even decades or a century later. Very, very cool stuff. So that was just a quick aside. Let's talk about, oh man, there's a couple of these here. Um, let's talk about 23andMe. So if you watch cable television, and I know that there's a few of you out there, if you watch cable television, you have probably seen these genetic testing services. Services that will tell you, hey, we'll let you know who you really are. Even though it's just your genes. Uh, and trust me, there are legitimate medical and uh, you know, there are legitimate, legitimate medical reasons to get your DNA tested. But to just know your heritage... Yeah, that seems a little uh, funny baloney to me. So let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about this. Twenty three and Me, they offer to test your DNA, sequence it, send it back to you. And if you thought that their price point of I think it's like sixty nine bucks, or I think some also do it for like eighty bucks, uh, very very cheap. You know, considering the amount of work that goes into it. If you thought that that was a ridiculously low price point. Well, you're, you're missing the hidden cost. And the hidden cost is data. Just like many uh, browsers out there, just like many advertising agencies, the fact that they're able to collect and use your data without your permission, or rather you give them permission to use your data, this is the end result. So this is coming to us from Live Science and uh, Lara Gekel talking about 23andMe is sharing its 5 million clients' genetic data with drug giant GlaxoSmithKline. So, yeah, there's a, yeah, this could overwhelmingly turn out to be something good, but at the same time, it's the end results of genetic testing, is that they're able to use your data, you, you, you kind of the data that makes up yourself, and test drugs in a laboratory setting without having to, you know, kind of test, uh, you know, 5 million individuals on this one particular drug. So they said that uh, during the four-year collaboration, the London-based GlaxoSmithKline will use 23andMe's genetic database to zero in on possible target treatments for human diseases. 
saying that the goal of the collaboration is to gather insights and discover novel drugs, targets, driving disease progression, and develop therapies. So, obviously, to do this, they said that uh, it it had invested $300 million in 23andMe. Essentially, they paid 300 million bucks for 5 million of their clients' data. So about 6 bucks a person, I think. No, no, that's 30 million. 60 bucks a person. So, hey, that's a pretty good return on investment. And you say, no, my DNA is mine. No, actually, your DNA, as soon as you get it sequenced through 23andMe, uh, Ancestry.com, any of these other DNA testing services, I would say everyone except Thanos or or Thanatos or, no, it was was Thanos. Thanos uh, testing services who promised to sequence your DNA as well through a drop of blood. Um, Yeah, they're probably the only ones who were too lazy to actually pull the data out of their clients, and uh, they were sent to jail for it. But, yeah, as soon as you get your DNA sequenced so that you can find out that you are, in fact, 13% Irish, because everyone is 13% Irish, uh, they own your DNA, and you can't say anything about it. So it's not clear yet which conditions will be investigated during the time or during the collaboration, but one example showed how the collaboration might work, where the two companies previously collaborated on the gene LRRK2. Ah, yes, the good old, the good old LRRK2 gene, which is linked to some cases of Parkinson's disease. So only about 10,000 of the 1 million Americans with Parkinson's disease have the disease because of the specific gene LRRK2. So, GlaxoSmithKline has to test about 100 Parkinson patients to find just one potential candidate. However, with the database, they have already provided 250 Parkinson's patients who have agreed to be recontacted for GlaxoSmithKline's clinical trials, which may help the pharmaceutical company develop the drug much faster. There you go. There's a prime example where... They you sign up, obviously, I don't know if it's a default setting or what have you, but 23andMe is allowed to recontact you and say, hey, you have this gene. Uh, this is a very rare gene, and we're trying to get people for a clinical trial. Would you consider working with our partner? Blah, blah, blah. And it sounds cool. It sounds like a good way to get the right people in touch with the right you know, organizations, but at the same time, it's definitely a for-profit, it's definitely a for-profit venture. 23andMe is not a non-profit. 23andMe is not a scientific uh, consortium of people looking out for everyone's best interest. It's a group of investors looking for the best way to turn your DNA into money through research grants, through companies such as this, and just like the companies who are developing these treatments, they're looking for the best way to corner the market on the best treatments available. So yes, some good can kind of fall out of this, but at the same time, what I I guess it's people giving up their, their privacy being analyzed and being sold as a package, essentially saying, hey, your your DNA is very rare. It's a very special DNA. You are a very special person. 
turns out we sold you for 60 bucks to GlaxoSmithKline and they want to do some tests on you. You cool with that? And, you know, there's not really a lot of things you can do if you've taken this test. And so there you have it. So there's a lot of other privacy issues that, and, and uh, Thanatos is right. Thanos is, I love that movie. Uh, Guardians, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Guardians of the Galaxy, the Avengers, Thanos is a wonderful, wonderful character. But no, Thanatos was the one that was sent to jail and didn't actually sequence your DNA. But I digress. There are privacy concerns because this is data you will never change in your lifetime. This is data that you give up forever. And giving them permission to do whatever they want with it, that is something just like digital permissions, just like a lot of things we talk about here on the show, the real ramifications of this probably be, won't be felt for years and years to come. But, I mean, hey, if people were upset that they were losing their browser history and Google was saying, hey, you just checked out faucets, you know what you would love to see everywhere on the internet? Here's a bunch of different faucets. If people were upset about that, imagine when they're going to target advertise you with uh, depends because your DNA shows that you are predisposed to bladder uh, uh, bladder problems or or the like. I mean, it's not a very dystopian future or not a very far away future if you really think about it. They're already catching criminals simply because a third cousin happened to get a DNA test and law enforcement is working with these companies to identify you know, long cold cases because of new technology such as this. It's... Um, yeah, uh, the most we can hope for is something good falls out of this, is that maybe a cure for uh, you know certain kinds of cancer, maybe a cure for so- certain kinds of Alzheimer's disease or genetic diseases, maybe a, cre- a cure falls out from this. And I don't want to say it will all be worth it, uh, because it might not, but hey, that's a step in the right direction. So let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, wow, only like less than a minute left. So some of the stories that we didn't get to, but I definitely wanted to. Virgin Galactic, they make a or they're trying to make a spaceship that will take people well to space. They want to be one of the first space tourism companies, and they just set a new record where 170,000 feet above the Earth's surface, they hit Mach 2 in their most recent test which is a new speed record for one of these ships. So Virgin Galactic, hey, space tourism, on, well on its way. Uh, Facebook loses $123 billion in value in just 24 hours. Imagine that. How much ice cream do you have to eat to get that empty feeling out of you out of, after losing $123 billion? So there's that and much, much more. Folks, if we have time tomorrow, we'll definitely dive back into this. But in the meantime... The music means that we're done. And I want to thank everyone in the chat room. I want to thank everyone out there listening on IRN. And I want to thank everyone out there listening on the podcast for tuning into Computer America and checking us out. So in the meantime, everyone have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you to our guest, Pango, for joining us on the program. And 
Hey, have a great day. Catch us here tomorrow, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. And until next time, be good, be safe, and don't give your DNA out to just anyone. Everyone, have a great day. Bye-bye.